listening to Matt Loves Cameras. Film cameras. Instant cameras. And everything analog photography related. If you're interested in Kodak Aerochrome, then you're in luck. No, I'm not selling any, but I do have a fascinating conversation lined up with Sydney-based film photographer Rob Warwin about his stunning project Karakins, shot entirely with infrared film here in Australia. If you're in Sydney or you're near Sydney, keep listening for details of how you can see the exhibition for yourself in the next few days. I'm Matt Murray, and this is Matt Loves Cameras. My friends, how are you? I hope you are well, wherever you are all around the world. Welcome to another episode of Matt Loves Cameras, episode 52 of Matt Loves Cameras. And today we have a fascinating conversation about erichrome and infrared film with Rob Walburn, an Australian photographer. It's a beautiful, beautiful sunny day here in Brisbane. It's a little bit hot. Summer has definitely arrived. Driving around this morning, there's all these beautiful frangipanis out with all the white and the pink and the yellow flowers. I love a good frangipani. Frangipani tree. In fact, I might get a might get a frangipani tree put in at my house, maybe next to the new pool. That'd be nice. Yes, we did have a pool put in our back garden over the winter months, which was a real pain in the bum, to be honest. We had so many people in our back garden. We had all this machinery, excavators, tilers, plumbers, electricians, you name it, we had it. Concreters, oh my gosh. There's so many people in the back garden. So we have this beautiful pool in the back garden now, but unfortunately the back is a complete mess. It's all mud, basically. So we need a landscaper in before. Christmas and then we can really enjoy things uh, but we are still using the pool in fact I better I better crack on with this podcast because I promised my son I uh, would go for a swim with him before the thunderstorm rolls in this afternoon so I'm about to play you the interview I recorded the other night with Rob Baldwin. Now, in the middle of the podcast, we talk about Rob's favourite images and some of my favourite images from the Karakins series or the Karakins project, which has turned into an exhibition. And if you'd like to see the images we're talking about, head along to Matt Loves Cameras on Instagram. And there's a pinned story on my Instagram called Karakins. And the pictures in the stories are in the same order as we talk about them on this podcast. So today, listeners, I'm very excited to talk to Rob Walwyn. Rob is an Australian film photographer based in Sydney, just down the road from me. Rob's upcoming solo exhibition is called Carrigans, and it documents the aftermath of the devastating 2019-2020 bushfires that took place in New South Wales. I'm sure many of you have seen images or footage of how those bushfires devastated Australia's east coast, but what makes Rob's images even more striking is his use of Kodak's false colour, infrared film aerochrome so today we'll be talking about how rob got into photography when he first discovered aerochrome his tips for shooting it and we'll talk about the cameras rob uses and also give you some details of the exhibition for those of you in sydney rob how are you i'm very well thanks matt thanks for having me on the show no worries i'm so glad you said yes because your your images uh, are just absolutely stunning and uh, it's, it's always good to chat to other australian film photographers so we might start at the very start. We're going to talk about Aerochrome and Karakin's project and, and your yep. other work as well. But let's sort of start at the start. How did you first get into photography? 
So, yeah, long story short. Um, so, yeah, I first got into photography, I think I was about 15 or 16. Um, my sister had just got a, a little digital point-and-shoot waterproof Olympus camera and yep. I was using it to take photos of my friends uh, surfing and the like. I was really interested in, in wave photography and, and still am. Um, that then led to a kind of rapid progression into purchasing a digital SLR and underwater housings. And I shot digital cameras for, I guess, many years before I eventually landed on film. I was obviously born a bit too late for the uh, film industry to be alive when I was uh, growing, well, first getting into photography, but yep. I'm glad to have seen this resurgence that's uh, that's taken place. Um, so I guess I, I was shooting on Canon digital cameras for, for, some, for some years. And then just before a trip to Africa, actually, a colleague at a camera store that I used to work at, uh, Ted's Cameras in, in Sydney here, um, he sold me a, a Canon EOS 3, 35mm film camera, which nice. I could use all my uh, Canon lenses on. And I took that to Africa and took some photos of elephants and giraffes and the like on Fuji Velvia. And when I got back and saw those on the white table, that's what really kind of sunk the passion in for film to me. And it's been a unfortunately never-ending gear conquest <laughs> since then, as you'll probably touch on later in the show. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's how I got into it. How many years were you shooting digital before you sort of got the film bug? Um, at least, I would say six, six or seven. So mm -hmm. I've probably been shooting film since I think 2012 and I think I probably started taking photos back in 2007 or eight. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a while on digital before I, I discovered film and then it wasn't an immediate transition to be solely film. I, I spent a couple of years shooting kind of a hybrid workflow where I was um, – partially digital and, and partially film as particularly good with those Canon cameras that I could use the same set of lenses. So that's great. You were, so you were shooting digital for about six years before you got into film and what sort of, what were your sort of, you know, not growing up with film, like I grew up with film, it was the only photography you could do. What was your sort of, did you have any preconceptions about film or shooting film or? Um, so yeah, I guess what first attracted me to, to shooting film in the first place uh, was the the limited nature of it. So the fact that I was taking, say, only 36 frames on a roll and really thinking about the composition of each shot before I took it. I mean, I'm still as guilty as anyone of burning through boring photos. Um, but I think the fact that I wasn't shooting 10 frames per second on my digital Canon cameras mm. and didn't have 10,000 images to, to go through in Lightroom when I got home from a trip, I found that part probably the most interesting of yep. shooting film and then I guess that evolved into the different look that's kind of hard to articulate that film has and then particularly some of the interesting films that like Aerochrome which we'll mm. talk about in a bit um, that are, to me are not replicatable in digital. That's right and do you find that liberating that feeling of you know I've got all these digital cameras as well but I, I, I shoot mostly for fun um, or just for a project and stuff I shoot film because it, it is liberating you you take your shots you compose them as best you can you try not to waste film you send them off to the lab and then you get this drop box of images and there's mm. no sort of sitting down trying to cull 10,000 images from a trip into you know should I choose this one or that one they're slightly different crops of the same thing do, do you find that liberating when shooting film? Yeah, definitely. And it's actually something that I'm trying to do a bit more um, as I'm going forward in this is moving towards, say, large format and having even fewer shots to think about and focus on just getting one good shot as opposed to even burning through a roll of, of medium format film. So definitely liberating to and also to not be able to review the images at the time. You yes. You can 
as cliche as it sounds, you can be much more in the moment, especially if I'm, say, even just taking photos of my friends and family. There's yeah. no opportunity to review an image as yeah. you take it. So you just you take it and you move on and enjoy the moment. That's right. Absolutely. Now, you spoke about Velvi there when you went to Africa. What other, mm. before you got into Aerochrome, you discovered Aerochrome, before that, what, what other film emulsions were you trying besides Velvia? I, I used to shoot a lot of, and I still do shoot a lot of uh, Kodak Portra, obviously everybody's favourite. Uh, color negative film but yeah i was really into the slide films that the hyper saturated colors um the contrast that it gets as well as just seeing them on a light table sure. especially in the the larger formats like medium format and, and large format it's truly something to behold um so yeah i'd say my favorite stocks yeah were velvier and portra both the 160 and the 400 speed sure. um, but i also was a big fan of provia 400x when i could still get that the color palette of that film was was really quite lovely probably less of a black and white guy myself personally um i i do shoot a fair bit of acros and triax when i can get my hands on acros um but yeah those are probably the main stocks that i use fantastic so can you remember where you first were when you when you first saw aerochrome i think probably like everybody listening who's seen aerochrome they would have seen it through richard moss's photos of um, the congo jungle so richard moss well-known irish photographer for his kind of war documentary style photography but that kind of crosses the boundaries between photojournalism and art i would say um yeah really beautiful but haunting and depressing images of the the, the civil war in the congo and that's I, I think i must have seen an article probably on some kind of blog back in 2012 or 2013 about his project and unfortunately at that point in time it didn't really sink into me that this was something that i was interested in and that i should find out more about i was obviously caught a bit by the images and the color and the bright pinks but didn't really look that much further into it um, which is, in retrospect, a really stupid decision because now, as we'll touch on later, I'm sure is, there's very limited supply left of this film. I wasn't able to actually go see Richard Moss's exhibitions, which I would have loved to see. I think they they held um, his exhibition of the Enclave at um, the Melbourne, the MG, whatever, the Melbourne Gallery yeah. is. Um, and it looked really beautiful and they had some kind of live uh, 16 mil footage of Aerochrome that I would oh, wow. love to have seen in the flesh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's probably what, where I initially saw it, but it wasn't until many years later that I actually took the plunge and purchased some myself. And were you like everybody else? And did you source your aerochrome from Dean Bernici? Is that right in Germany? I think you, Dean is. is that yeah, yeah. Was? It is, and I think that's probably how everyone in the world has got theirs, <laughs> apart from the lucky few who've been able to buy some bulk rolls, actually like myself. Um, but Dean was, yeah, he was an interesting guy. He he found founded this project called the Aerochrome Project, where he, he um, sourced whatever Kodak discontinued stock, and they discontinued this film back in I think tw- two thousand and nine. So whatever he could buy, and these rolls came in kind of huge, nine point five inch or five inch wide film formats used for aerial cameras for their kind of original camouflage detection and aerial kind of survey mapping purposes. And he hand cut them down to the right size to and re-spooled them in 120 film paper backings um, and made them available to the rest of the world. And what's particularly depressing is if you look back and find old blog posts on the internet about people buying them for $10, $20 a roll, and now you compare to what they're currently yeah. fetching on eBay, yeah. would have been nice to have known about it back then. <laughs> That's right. So how many rolls did you end up buying from Dean? 
So the, the initial purchase, I, I bought five rolls from Dean. And I think back then they were maybe 40 euros a roll. So I don't know, $60 Australian, yep. um, which was a lot of money at the time. But I thought that they that was interesting and that this was just something that I would like to have in my freezer and like to have the ability to shoot at some point. And then I, it took me a couple of months to actually get the courage to shoot the first roll. And I did lots of research on the internet for how people shot the film and, and what to expect kind of thing. Um, but then... Yeah, that led to, I guess, this project, but which wasn't originally designed as a project. It was really kind of spontaneous and happenstance. But I saw um, some of the pictures of the bushfire regrowth, um, in, in particularly in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales, and just thought I could see the bright, vivid green uh, regrowth and I knew how regrowth turned or green foliage turned on aerochrome turned bright pink and different shades of red and I thought that that might make for for an interesting photo so I, I took my first role in in March 2020 so maybe three months after the bushfires had been through this particular area right. in the Blue Mountains um, and at that time yeah really had no idea about the project it was it was really only when I saw the results from the film and and um, got quite a few comments and and people messaging me telling me how much they enjoyed that particular photo, the kind of iconic shot of the series um, for me, that I really thought, okay, this might be a, a project that I should investigate. And, and it's my first ever project. All my other work is always just being kind of spontaneous. Sure. So you, that's interesting. One of the questions I had written down here was, you know, tell us about your first role. And you, you actually mm. shot the first role uh, of, of the bushfire regrowth. And that's, you know, sort of almost a Kickstarter for this whole project. Mm. What did you, did you sort of nail the first role or, you know, you said you did a lot of research and you listened mm. to what a lot of other people did. How was that first role? Did you nail it or did you then take that and, and improve on the situation? Um, so I would say, I mean, in my mind, I nailed it because I got the photo that kind of led to the series, but yep. there were definitely a few technical mistakes on that first roll. Sure. Um, and I had, yeah, I'd reached out to lots of people, anyone I could find on Instagram that had shot the film. I reached out asking for their tips and tricks and basically did as much research as I could before actually shooting this very yep. rare film. Um, but yeah, that first roll, there's definitely a bit of overexposure in the in the role, I definitely didn't account for the way that it deals with filter factors and the effective kind of ISO of the film, yep. um, which we can, I guess, touch on in a bit. But yeah, I would say it was overarching a success. So which is the, I, the, I mean, all your images look amazing to me. So which one are you talking about when you're saying that the, the iconic um, image? It's it's an image. Uh, it's called Karakins Number 1. I don't know if I attached it in the file. Yes, I, did, I, yeah, yeah. I probably did. So oh, it's the, the one. looking upwards? Yeah. yeah. The, the trees looking upwards. And that was, it was a scene that I just drove past on on the, the highway there in the Blue Mountains. I think it's Bell's Line of Road. And it just really caught my eye, um, the, the shape of those trees. So I, I pulled off to the side and took the photo. And I just really love how you can see see the little tiny regrowth in the top left of that image, the little parts uh, kind of climbing and snaking up the trees. Yeah. And the it really shows to me that the blackened trees contrasting with that pink regrowth. Yeah, incredible. Um, so that was the kind of first image I ever put out from this series on, on Instagram and uh, on Facebook. And, and it really led to a pretty strong reception that, yeah, ultimately led me to kind of pursue this as a whole project. And what was that shot on? Was that shot on the 645? So this was the Pentax 672, so that's probably sure. the main camera I used for this series. Um, mm -hmm. It's my workhorse. I know that the, the meter works well, the lenses are beautiful, and, and I really love the handling of that camera. So as well as the, the Pentax 672, you also used mm -hmm. a Mir 645 
and the Fuji TX1, also known as the X-Pan. So yep. what what sort of, how many rolls would you have shot in each, do you think, roughly? So the Pentax 6.7, probably 10 rolls, maybe the, the X-Pan 2 or Fuji TX2, probably five rolls. So that's in 35 mil. Yep. And then the Mamiya 645, probably five or six rolls itself. So I think I've probably shot about 20 rolls in total at this point sure. in time. And is the experience um, in terms of um, in terms of metering, in terms of setting the camera up, does the experience differ a lot between those three cameras? Um, very little. And to be honest, I'm not quite as uh, intricate as perhaps other people are when they're using Aerochrome. I'm a bit more run and gun where I'm happy to trust the camera's meter now sure. that I've shot had some experience with my cameras and how they meter and respond with Aerochrome yep. and the various filters that I use. Um, but yeah, I'm generally pretty happy to trust the spot meter in my my six seven two, and also the XPan's uh, average meter seems to work fine as long as you set the appropriate ISO, which is yeah four hundred, and and you have a bit of an understanding of how it will respond to a given metering a given scene. Yep. Um, I've been fine with with trusting the meter reading. Uh, I know a lot of people would be probably using spot meters, like I've got a handheld Seconic spot meter, and if I was doing large format or or something like that, I would certainly be metering through the filter and and taking my time. And perhaps I'll do a bit more of that going forward, given my stock starting to run out. Um, but yeah, up until this point, it's mostly been aperture priority and, and meter through the meter. Excellent. So. Talk me through the process. So you've got your Pentax 672 in there in front of you. Mm-hmm. You use, am I correct in thinking you use an orange number 16 filter? Is that correct? Yep. Uh, so I've got a B plus W is the brand and it's yep. a 040 filter, which is I yep. think a Rattan number 16 orange filter. So, yeah. Yep. And it looks just kind of like a normal orange color. And it's the same filters that people would be using for black and white kind yep. of contrast filters on their black and white film. Sure. Um, and, and the choice for that uh, filter, we can, so I guess the that Kodak actually recommends a slightly different filter. They recommend a number 12, which is a light yellow filter. Yeah. And I've taken some images with that filter, but I find that it's not the optimal color balance. And it's a weird thing to talk about color balance on a film that's false color, but <laughs> it, yeah. it lets in a bit too much of the blue light mm-hmm. that all of the filters that you use for Aerochrome are really designed to cut out. Um, sure. So, don't want to get too much into the technical side of how um, the film layers and the color emulsions and dyes all work, but effectively the film is overly sensitive to blue light and you need to use a filter of some sort to cut through that. And the kind of least uh, effective filter at doing that is a yellow number 12. Sure. And then it becomes kind of increasingly cutting out blue green light as you move up towards say an orange filter. And you can even use uh, like a red filter as well. Okay. Great. Um, but yeah, the orange filter to me produces the most natural color palette yep. um, without kind of letting or having a too much of a blue tint to the photo, which I find the yellow number 12 does as well. And certainly on, on Dean's website, which is, I think, I believe all the stocks are gone there now, but it's aerochrome.shop. There are mm-hmm. actually some, I think there's a gallery on there somewhere where you can actually see the effects that Dean mm-hmm. has, has photographed using different filters and the kind of palettes that you get, which is which is really super useful. So do you take your Pentax 6.7s, you put the filter mm-hmm. on, it's a circular filter, correct? Yep. You put that filter on uh, and then what do you do? Do you load the film in the dark? Yeah, so you, or? 
So it depends on the format of the film. So if you're using a 120 film camera, you don't actually need to load it in darkness. Um, sure. It's a bit of a, not, not a misconception, but something that people might think you need to do, but sure. it's really only when you're using, say, a 35-millimetre film canister. Yep. And, and the reason being that the felt, the felt trap on a 35 mil film camera is actually transparent to infrared. Um, right. So if you, if you load that in uh, daylight, it's yeah. essentially like opening a huge light leak onto the yeah, film. Right. Sure. Um, so yeah, you definitely don't want to do that on 35 millimeter aerochrome mm. or, or particularly some of the other infrared films, like say Kodak high speed, black and white infrared film. That's sure. even worse for that. Wow. It'll fog, okay. fog almost <laughs> the entire roll if you do that. So that one yep. definitely loaded darkness. Um, so, yeah, I would just generally load it in subdued light, but I have also loaded them and unloaded the 120 film in daylight and had okay. no light leaks. No and it's because it's protected by the, the backing paper. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So you've got your 6.7, you put the orange filter yep. on, set the ISO to 400, mm -hmm. load it up, and then are you saying then you pretty much just, you know, with the ISO set to 400, you are pretty much, um, you know, just trusting the meter or what it's telling you, uh, you know, your spot metering through the camera or whatever, but you're just, you're just trusting what it's telling you. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, generally, I mean, you could even use the evaluative metering mode on, on any camera and it should do a, a pretty decent job. And that's what I would recommend to people who are just shooting one roll and they don't have much to experiment with sure. is to set your camera to 400 on the ISO meter through the filter with your camera or an external meter. And I would generally suggest metering for like the brightest green leaves in the scene okay. yeah. and setting that to zero exposure. So neutral gray sure. that way, that's how I've generally done it. And I've always had relatively consistent results. You're listening to Matt Loves Cameras. That's the one you're going to use. <laughs> I've actually got some film here. So, I mean, is there much difference? I'll show you what I've got. So I've got Aerochrome. I've got, this is from Dean. I've got one's 127. Yeah. That's what he had left over. I've got some 120 yeah. and a 35 mil. But I've also picked these up off eBay, and I'm not sure who we were chatting about this before the recording. Mm. I've also got uh, high speed infrared, yep. which is a black and white one, and I've also got the the, the color version there. So I've only got two yep. rolls of those each. So if you, you know, if I've only got two rolls of these each. I've been told they're good storage conditions, but who knows? You never really know, mm -hmm. and you, you can't really go back and get your money back. So if you only had say four rolls of this stuff, mm -hmm. what would your plan be in terms of shooting it? So yeah, you've got two two different types of or three different types of film there. So the ones that you've got from Dean are all um, a variant of Aerochrome called Aerochrome One Four Four Three. So that was the kind of last generation that Kodak made in the the color infrared films. Um, you've then also got your Kodak Ektachrome Infrared EIR is your other color infrared film there that they only made in in thirty five mil. And that's actually a slightly different emulsion to Aerochrome. Um, very similar effect. The images look pretty similar. I've actually not been able to tell the difference between oh, wow. the emulsion and I, and I don't have enough stock to actually compare the two. Yeah. Um, but they're definitely a different film. It's got a slightly different colour palette and the speed on EIR is only 200 compared sure. to um, Aerochrome's 400. And then your other film that you had there, the high-speed infrared, is a black and white infrared film and that's a beautiful film. That 
that's the most infrared sensitive of any film, I think. So it extends out to 900 nanometers. So it oh. produces really beautiful um, kind of glowy black and white effect. Yep. Um, but essentially, if I only had two of each role, I would definitely be doing lots of research before I took any photos. So reaching out to people even like myself or anyone else you can find on Flickr or uh, Instagram that's shot those films and asking them for their tips and yeah. trying to read as much as you can, even reading the old Kodak data sheets that talk yes. about the films and, and how to shoot them. Um, but for colour infrared, that's probably the most tricky, I would say. Your your key issue with the colour infrared that you've got there, that EIR, if you don't know how it's been stored, it can degrade really quite quickly when it's outside of the freezer. And sure. the anecdote I heard from a from a friend was that they, when they originally shipped that film Kodak back in the day, they used to ship it in kind of styrofoam kind of freezer boxes with dry ice in wow. it at, at negative 100 degrees or, oh, or something wow. like that. Um, yeah. But that's probably an overkill. I think the, the key thing is to just keep it cool where possible and to kind of limit its time out of a fridge or a mm. freezer and definitely time out of direct sunlight. Sure. Um, but for your film, what I would personally be recommending is that you shoot it for processing it in C41, so actually as a negative yeah. as opposed to as a positive in, say, E6 chemistry. And, and the reason being, and, and my experience with some of these films, which I've had as well, that also have questionable storage conditions, is that uh, you actually have a lot more latitude when um, developed as C41 and when you overexpose the film slightly. So say adding an extra half or one stop compared mm -hmm. to what the box speed says it should be. Sure. Um, because interestingly, the film doesn't have a coloured base like a regular um negative film does. So when you invert it, you actually have quite a lot more flexibility in how you interpret the colour palette yep. um, and quite a lot of flexibility in the exposure that you can get. And you can also obviously print it in the darkroom then, mm. whereas you're unlikely to be able to do that from E6 with yeah. Cybercrime, something like and that. And how do the colour palettes differ between getting, you know, the EIR processed as in C41 cross-processed or as E6? Yep. How, how do the palettes differ? Probably the most obvious thing, and depending on how you scan it is, or, or say even print it, that's probably going to be the biggest factor. Um, E6, the, the images, especially with, say, an orange film, come out with quite a nice neutral palette. So the, the sky looks normal sky blue. Trees generally look pink, um, sometimes erring on the side of red, depending on your scanner. Um, but in C41, what happens is you get a bit more of a cyan colour shift in the sky, so it doesn't look quite as natural a blue sky. Mm -hmm. um, and then the trees generally look a bit more kind of fluorescent red than pink. Right, wow. um, but it does really depend on how you scan it and how you invert mm -hmm. it yourself. Sure. Now, we're talking about the, the orange filter for the aerochrome, but would you, what yep. filters would you suggest for these two, the Kodak EIR and the Kodak black and white? Yeah, so for the EIR, I'd probably be, and again, depends on how you plan on processing it. If you know it's stored well and you're planning to get slides from it and shoot it for E6, I would be setting the ISO to 200, say, in my XPAN, and I would usually be recommending the same kind of orange filter, so an sure. orange um, number 16 filter. Yep. Um, I would then be saying if you were planning to shoot it for uh, for C41 processing that I'd probably recommend a yellow number 12 filter. Okay. Um, the reason being there seems to just be a bit more colour information and that's beneficial when you're inverting the, the C41 negative. Sure. 
for your other high speed infrared black and white film, probably be recommending a red 25 filter. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is, it, it's interesting for infrared film, you generally need to use a like an R72 filter, which is a, a kind of 720 nanometer cutoff mm-hmm. filter. Um, but for HIE, because it's so infrared sensitive, you can actually use a, a red 25 filter and still get that same infrared effect basically sure. as a R72, and you can shoot it handheld. Um, so it's effective ISO with that filter is probably ISO 50. So yeah. it's no no worse than shooting Velvia 50 in the day, which yeah, means sure. you can hold it and not use a tripod. Yeah. But you have, what, sorry, what ISO would you set that one, the black and white one, did you say? was it- So it's, it's, it's generally considered a 400 speed yeah. film. So if I was shooting through the meter, I would have my X-Pan, say, set to 400 yeah. and my red 25 filter on. Yeah. Um, and that would be equivalent to setting a... a an effective ISO of say 50 sure. if you were just metering externally and not metering yeah. through the filter. Um, so that kind of takes into account the the filter factor. Yeah. That's probably erring a bit much on the overexposed side, I would say. So it might even be that you could set your ISO on your meter to say 640 and meter mm-hmm. through the red filter. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, talking about your project, Karakins, huh? first of all, what does Karakins mean? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a, a word describing a, a group of molecules um, that are uh, were discovered based on their kind of role in contributing to regeneration of plants following a bushfire. Um, so yeah, my background at, at uni, I studied chemistry, and I'm fascinated by chemistry, um, which I guess leads itself to film pretty well. Um, but yeah, when I was recent searching bushfires just as part of this project, I discovered this word and this set of um, molecules called caracans and it was it was a perfect alignment for me. It had uh, the etymology of that word comes from an Aboriginal word for smoke. Um, The Uh fact that these molecules can stimulate uh, kind of the regrowth of dormant seeds and certain plants also was fascinating to me. So that that's where the, the name came from. Fantastic. And would you like to talk us through some of your your Karakins images? So I've got them here in front of me in the Dropbox. I want to choose, you know, a few of these images, your, your favourites. And, I mean, they're all absolutely stunning, so we could talk about all of them, but we probably don't have time. But which, which ones would you like to talk about? Which ones are your personal favourites? So I think I've got a couple there. So uh, I think the one that I sent you first. So we've already spoken about the first one, Karakins number one. Yeah. So that was that first image that I took as part of the project and and I think yeah we've probably spoken about that already to death so I don't need to deal with that one more so one of the the other ones Karakins number eight and I presume you'll kind of project these on screen um this was an image I took in the Blue Mountains and and probably people in New South Wales would have seen on social media back in I think January or 2021 these uh flannel flowers were popping up everywhere in the Blue Mountains and it was kind of a social media craze where everybody was rushing out to the Blue Mountains to see these Mm. um, rare wildflowers. And and so these are particularly interesting flowers because they only uh, germinate after heavy bushfires and then followed by heavy rain. Um, And that's exactly what the Blue Mountains um, saw Mm. over the 2019 and 2020 years. Um, and so I thought this was quite a special uh, moment and that these flowers fit quite well with the series and, and the story that I was trying to tell. 
Yeah. So I made sure I went out to the Blue Mountains and hunted around for for some of these flowers, which were yeah quite beautiful. Yeah, so it's, it's a stunning white. image and just the, the beautiful flower in the center of the photo. There looks like it's got a droplet of water on at the top of it. There, or it a few does. droplets of water, and, and then the beautiful out of focus area behind it. And yeah, the the droplet was what I was mostly interested in. And when you see that print large, it's quite beautiful. You can see the little reflections in the water droplet and and things like that. And uh, I guess the the color shift is quite interesting as well. So it looks yellow in most of the kind of uh, pollen of the flowers, but in real life it's pink. Wow. Um, so it's an interesting shift where the stuff that's green turns pink and the stuff yep. that's pink turns yellow. So yeah, you never know what you're going to get. Fantastic. And what's uh, tell us about Carrican's number four? I mean, this almost looks to me like a, the Grand Canyon sort of thing. You've got these. I mean, this is in the Blue Mountains, correct? It is, yeah. So. Uh, also, yeah, Blue Mountains, that's where a lot of the images from this series were taken. So um, this was a hike that I'd seen some photos that friends had taken of, of that mountain. And it's not it's not the well-known one in the Blue Mountains that people probably think that it is. Um, it's another beautiful walk in the Blue Mountains that has sure. sensational views. Um, and, yeah, this was... I was very fortunate on this day. So that, that image is also taken with the C41 processing. So oh, wow. that's the okay. kind of colour palette that you can expect. Yep. Um, but that one was drum scanned, so you can. So that one's a kind of major big print in the series that I've got. So yeah, it's an I extraordinary. I mean, it's a beautiful photo, but it, just the viewpoint to be able to get that sort of scene over the forest, by the mm. bush, you know, in the mountains is, is absolutely stunning. And so, what what camera was that one taken in? The six seven. Yeah, also the six seven two. That's with a, a seventy five millimeter lens, so mm-hmm. it's equivalent to roughly a thirty five millimeter focal length, I guess. Um, and I also took a, a kind of pairing image for that series, which is probably not in the folder I sent you, but is part of the series okay. um, where I used a, a quite telephoto lens on the Pentax to focus in on that river that yes. you can see in the image. And I think the two images pair really well. It's it's quite a beautiful shot of the kind of S curve of the Blue River uh, yeah. with the kind of burnt trees on on either side. And why did you take that one in, and process that one in C41 just simply because you didn't know the origin of the film sort of thing? Uh, no, that so I also choose sometimes to process in C41 when I know that there's a reason for it. So such sure. as I want the increased dynamic range or yep. increased colour flexibility. So, yeah, the C41 negative, you can see in the sky there, there's actually a bit of detail yep. still left in those clouds. clouds yeah. And if I'd taken that on E6, I almost guarantee that it would have been pure white and that yeah, there'd be no information there. Sure. Yeah. Brilliant. So what's another one of your favourites in this folder? Uh, I think number 14 is another favourite. So that's the one with the three cows that are all lined up staring at me. Um, So this was in... (laughs) Yeah, I also love a cow. And these ones were particularly interested in me and I just loved the way that they lined up and are pretty symmetrical. Um, And then with the, the burnt trees in the background, you can really see the kind of burnt sticks where there's been no regrowth back and then some of the trees have obviously got some regrowth Mm. yeah so this was in the snowy mountains in yayuk so strange place near adaminibi if anyone's been out that way um but was hit pretty badly by the the bushfires as well and i spent a i spent a couple of trips actually exploring that area it's really it's really beautiful yeah, it does look beautiful. And tell us about number 12, Carrican's number 12 here. I mean, that looks to be a slightly almost different palette. Can you tell us about that one? Uh, good question. Can you describe the image to me? Sorry, it's I one of the kids in the pool. It's, it's a striking oh, image. Yeah. You've got all of these kids and people in the pool, some kids in the pool um, taking a selfie and sort of smiling at the, at the camera. But in the background, over, over 
overshadowing this sort of beautiful summer pool image, you've got these haunting sort of trees. Um, tell us about that one. Yeah, so that's also in the Snowy Mountains. So that's from the same trip as that cow shot. So it's uh, in Yurangabili. Um, it's part, yeah, part of the Snowy Mountains, and it's a thermal pool actually in that wow. area. So, so that pool is naturally, I think, twenty six degrees wow. all year round, which must be pretty nice to visit when it's freezing in winter. Yeah, absolutely. The snowing would be quite nice and warm. Um, but yeah, I, I saw an image again of, of this pool on social media, and the fact that it had these beautiful. Um, trees in the background and the mountains that were absolutely ravaged by the bushfires mm. and then contrasted with people frolicking in a pool and yeah, having a fun old time. Yeah. I think that's what made this image really special to me. Awesome. And let's talk about one more. I'll pick another one. Tell us about this one. I mean, there's two there right next to each other. I really love, but tell us about Carrickens number 10. And that's one of the, is a car, like a white Commodore by the look of it, or maybe yep. a Falcon. And there's like a desolate road and, and just mm. these beautiful, incredible, you know, pinks and reds in the blue sky and the power poles, the leading lines there. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so this one was taken just off the highway in Sussex Inlet in, in south coast of New South Wales. Um, so this is an area I've been back to many times and often taking photos of the same tree kind of at six monthly intervals to see how the regrets changed. Um, but this yeah, scene really caught my eye, just as you described it, the, the leading lines of the power pole and the winding road, which yeah. is actually, a, I think, a fire trail. Yes. Um, and this car that's just sitting there. I didn't see any owners for that car. It was just <laughs> lying there and I, I just really loved the scene and the little dip branch that's also fallen mm. off a tree or blown off a tree. Foreground, yeah. Yeah, on the foreground. So, yeah, that's that was a, a, I was really happy with that image. And the colour palette, yeah, you said is a bit different and that one's also done in C41. So yeah. the, the colours do look a little bit different. So can you imagine this project going ahead, if you didn't have access to Aerochrome, would you have still shot this series of images with a different film or would it have been something entirely different, do you think? So I think I probably would have still shot some images, perhaps with black and white infrared film, which you can still buy. So Rolly make an infrared 400, Ilford make their SFX 200, which are still kind of readily available infrared films. And they have quite a beautiful look to them. And I've, I've taken some photos as part of this series on those types of films. Um, but perhaps it wouldn't have had the same initial impact and the same response from, from people and perhaps would not have led me to pursue it as a whole project. And I think particularly I would not have pursued this as a digital camera project. I mean, mm. I've I've seen the results that you can get from converted infrared um, digital cameras and, and they're interesting and I'm looking into exploring that at some point, probably more from a black and white perspective. But I think the colour infrared images just don't have the same nuance and subtlety as weird as it sounds to say about a mm. garish film like Aerochrome. Yeah. Um, they just don't have that same palette. So I found an interview online with Richard Moss and he said that he'd never used infrared film before shooting his project Infra, uh, which is you know, the big famous project he did in the Congo. And there's a quote here and he said, uh, using the film has been an endless trial, negotiating my own inadequacy with a military military reconnaissance technology, which of course is aerochrome, that registers a type of light that is invisible to the human eye. I was literally photographing blind. The film places me at the limits of representation, the points at which not just photography, but perception itself begins to fail. So 
you know, he was using this film. He didn't know what it would turn out like. Do you think for people after seeing that, you know, his work, do you think, do you think it made it easier for you to visualize it? Or do you think you were still photographing blind when you, when you shot Eric Rome? I definitely wasn't photographing blind. So, I mean, he was probably the photographer who repopularized the whole era chrome um so i mean it, it had its heyday back in the day of the the 1960s and 70s kind of psychedelic <laughs> era and it became a bit of a niche kind of cliche film that people kind of lost interest with which i guess eventually led to its discontinuation um but he was yeah the one who kind of re-brought it back to, to popular attention so I, I would say when i was shooting it i was definitely not shooting blind i had his huge body of work and um, as well as many other photographers on Instagram and Flickr who mm. I could refer to their work and how they had kind of solved the issues of shooting Aerochrome. I mean, generally I'd say it's not a particularly difficult film to shoot. It's no more difficult than shooting, say, Velvia. Definitely yeah. the hardest part is obtaining the film yeah. and making sure that you've got a, a lab that can process. <laughs> yeah, paying for it, getting the bank loans, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. You're listening to Matt Loves Cameras. So you said that when you took Carrickens one, the picture of those trees looking mm-hmm. upwards and the, the regrowth there in pink and, and the beautiful sky, you said that sort of kickstarted the project for you when you thought, right, there's something, I'm onto something here. How did you know when you had enough images for the project? How did you know when you thought, right, this is it, I'm done now? Was there a process you went through or did, did that realisation come later on? So, I, I mean, the project is ongoing. I'm planning on doing this for quite a quite a long time. I've got, oh, wow. I've built, I've spent some the last two years acquiring as much Aerochrome as I can lay my grubby mitts on. <laughs> um, so my freezer is full of Aerochrome, much to my girlfriend's disgust. No <laughs> uh, room for anything leftovers. Um, but yeah, so the the project is still very much ongoing, and I plan to eventually release a book. And I'd like wow. to explore a couple more themes before I, I get to that kind of project closure. But I guess for for this exhibition, um, which is part of Head On, um, I got to a point where I had what I thought were enough images to make it worth submitting to a a competition like that. Um, And once it got accepted, and that's kind of like six months ago now, where they say you've been accepted, the festival will be in November, go and organise your exhibition. That at least gave me a really kind of definitive target to work towards for okay, this will be my kind of initial dip in the water of having my own exhibition. Um, it'll really get a sense for, yeah, the costs involved and all the effort involved in preparing for an exhibition. And that will hopefully lead to a, a more successful and much bigger exhibition down the track when I finish the project. Absolutely. And tell us about that uh, application process to be part of the head-on photography uh, festival in Sydney. Did you have to submit words and an artist statement and images? What was it like? Yeah, exactly. And, and I've had a couple of things where I've submitted to different kind of magazines and and things with the same series. Um, And it's generally just, you have to provide them with a set of images. So maybe it's, you either have to pay per image or sometimes you have to, they ask you to upload a certain set, like maybe three or 10 images or whatever it might be. And then generally a pretty brief artist statement kind of explaining uh, the materials that you've used. So the film and the cameras, et cetera, as well as the intent behind the the project. Sure. but yeah, I can't even remember when I submitted that. It must have been earlier this year, so March this year, and then found out that it had been accepted for the festival in maybe June. And then, yeah, since then, it's really just been planning and hoping that COVID didn't uh, cancel mm. the exhibition, which it was really looking like it would at, at, at a couple of points. Um, yeah. 
So how many images are being displayed in the exhibition? I think there's 17 that I printed, but I've probably got maybe 50 or 60 that I'm happy yep. with to some, some degree. So it's definitely a subset of the, the images that I've got that I'll be exhibiting, but just based on the space and also the cost of printing lots of images very, very big is uh, very prohibitive. So tell us about the printing process. How, how big are the images that you're displaying and what kind of, you know, how are they being presented exactly? So I got all the images printed on um, Ilford Gallery Pearl paper. So it's a nice... Um, inkjet paper take, has really nice kind of semi-metallic sheen to it, which uh, I think yeah. works well with these images. Mm. And then they're all framed in in white frames for this exhibition and with kind of anti-reflective glass yep. um, for, for the exhibition. But uh, I also printed one that's a, a big panorama from the, the X-Pan. Uh, I think it's about a metre and a half wide and that's mounted onto a, a wooden board, um, um, which I'm hoping looks looks really nice when hung up. Yeah. And so do you, as the artist, do you uh, sort of bear the costs of, of the framing and the printing and all that? So I think it really depends on the nature of the exhibition. So for this one, it was very much a self-funded exhibition, yeah. a part of the head-on photo festival, but it's all entirely on me to um, get my get the space, so rent the gallery, yeah. run it myself. I have to take a couple of days off work wow. and then, uh, yeah, pay for all the costs of uh, printing and, and framing, which, yeah, they add up pretty quickly. I think you I spent nearly guess, yeah. three or $4,000 on the, wow. the framing itself. And I, will you be selling any of, of these printed images and framed images or, or, you know, other sort of variants of that? Yeah. Yeah. So definitely we'll be selling them as part of the, the exhibition. And I've just recently added them to my website, but haven't kind of made the page public just yet. Um, I'll do that as part of the exhibition, but I've, I've sold a couple of prints prior to this exhibition. So what I had to do was make sure I was consistent with my editioning and for a given size of print, making sure that if I say something's only 30 editions, but I've sold 20 that I've only got 10 left and make sure yeah. that I stick to that number. Um, so I've got, I think a couple of different, different sizes, maybe four or five different sizes, and, and they have different edition numbers based on, on the size. So awesome. I think the big, the biggest print is up to, I mean, the average print in the exhibition is maybe 80 centimetres tall. And uh, so the frames are about a metre tall. So it's pretty big, about, yeah. about A1 size. Um, and then down to roughly A3 size for some of the smaller ones. And where did you get your images printed? Uh, so there's, I usually use Rewind Photo Lab in, in Glebe here in Sydney. Um, their printing quality is excellent, but I think with the time I, I wanted to go for a shop that had framing and printing all in one, um, just because I left it a bit last minute to submit my orders before the exhibition. Um, so there's a, a website called frameshop.com.au, I think, and yeah. they ship Australia-wide and been really impressed with the quality of the printing and the framing um, and the price is, is pretty good as well. Excellent. And I believe, I understand that you had your aerochrome and your infrared film uh, developed and scanned by Rewind Photo Lab. Is that right? Yeah, mostly developed and, oh, definitely all developed by Rewind, but some of them, all, all the ones in the exhibition scanned again by myself. I've got quite a nice um, Hasselblad FlexTite scanner. Wow. Um, You've got all your toys. Yeah. I've, I've got lots of good toys. I've, I told you it led, led me down a bit of a gear rabbit hole. Um, but, yeah, it, it makes sense when you're printing big especially to get nice quality scans. Some yeah. of the images I actually had drum scanned at a place here in Sydney as well, um, which, yeah, was hoping to print some even bigger than I am actually. So yeah. maybe in future I'll print some that are kind of two metres tall, wow. which would be nice. Now, 
one of your first film cameras, I think you said, was the EOS 3. Is that correct? Yeah, that's so right. What, what was your path like from the EOS 3 to the Pentax 672, the X-Pan, uh, you know, getting the Flexlight scanner? How did you, did you sort of just go from the, the EOS 3 and thought, right, I love this film stuff. I'm just going to buy all the, the best goodies or what, what happened? Yeah, it was a bit like that, but a bit of a 10, 15-year process to get there. So <laughs> definitely did not commit to a Flexite scanner up front. Yep. Um, it's been a bit of a journey. So standard thing that everyone would be doing, which is buying and selling and trading and working their way from camera to camera. And I've, yep. I've basically been through them all, yep. I would say. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I've refined what types of cameras work well for me and what I actually need. Yep. I don't really need any of them, but <laughs> what I want. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I think the journey was from, yeah, an EOS 3. I think the X-Pan was a pretty early purchase for me. I was really fascinated by that camera, and it's my desert island camera. It's the one yeah. camera I would keep if I had to sell all my others. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, that led me to medium format. So the, I bought the original Pentax 6.7 first, and then that led to the 6.7.2, and then I wanted to try 6.4.5 and Leicas and yeah. all kinds of cameras. And I think I'm now getting to the point, as I said, where I'm, I'm settling in on the types of cameras and gear that I uh, want. And really, it's more in that kind of medium to large format realm is where I'd like to be. Excellent. Yeah, a previous guest on the show, a guy called Jake Bright, who you might know from um, the film, uh, Australian Film Photographers Group. He's a Polaroid. He's a great guy. He's a Polaroid repair guy in Melbourne. And, uh, you know, yep. when I had him on the show, he said, you know, he said, my take on gas is buy everything and then just sell what you don't want. You know, try everything, buy everything and then get rid of the rest. And um, I, I must admit, I've been doing that lately and I've got to, I've got to try and uh, sell some of my stuff because you probably see behind me all these cameras everywhere <laughs> and the place is a mess. I've got to get rid of stuff. So I've got a few other questions I'm going through. It's been a really great discussion and I'm just looking through my other questions here. So I'm going to ask you a few random questions. They may not fit into the flow of the, of the interview too much, but we'll, we'll yeah, get these it. final ones uh, down as well. So I had a look at your website and you have some, your fabulous photography on there and it's sort of all uh, arranged around places like Indonesia and Iceland and stuff like that. Is it all film on your website or is there some digital there as well? No, definitely some digital on there as well. So I, I still haven't been able to commit to going on an international trip without a digital camera. Um, I think my trip to Iceland was, yeah, more of an exception in that regard. Almost 90% were shot on film, yeah. um, like the Pentax 6.7 and the X-Pan. But generally, whenever I travel, I do take a digital camera just in case there's something that I want to capture on a digital camera. And yep. they, they definitely have their place. Absolutely. Um, for, for Iceland, I wouldn't have been able to take some of the photos that I got of the Aurora on mm. film. I shot some of the Aurora on film and they, they came out quite nice, yeah. but it's there's just technological advances that digital has yeah. that film, film doesn't have 3,200 speed films that look nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, the majority of the work is film and certainly in the last maybe four years I've been, I would say, almost 85 90% film shooting. Fantastic. Um, so a random question. Um, yep. So I think this is the first time I think when I, I saw your photos and you, I noticed that you'd use an X-Pan or the TX1 or TX2, is it? And I said to you, I sort of said to you, hey, um, I'm not sure if you remember, but I said, hey, um, you used like an X-Pan. How come there were no issues with mm. the infrared film fogging through an X-Pan? Because I, I thought I had to use a fully manual camera. So mm. tell me about the, the use of, of the infrared film in the X-Pan and with the DX coding and stuff. How did that all work? Yeah, so I'm not sure if there's actually a misconception about DX codes. I, I haven't done my research, to be honest, but essentially, yeah, the concern is that the camera uses some kind of infrared LED within the camera 
which doesn't impact normal film, so people wouldn't be aware that it exists in their camera. Um, but when you put infrared-sensitive film in there, it fogs the whole film. And that's yeah. definitely the case with certain cameras like the Fuji, say, GA645, yeah. Um, it's a medium format 120 kind of point and shoot camera that has an LED sensor that runs down the middle of the frame oh, wow. and is used to count the kind of spacing between the frames yeah, so that yeah. the camera knows when to stop winding. But when used on an infrared film, it looks absolutely horrible. There's this big red streak right through the middle of your photos. Yeah. And so you, that's why you definitely have to do your research on your camera before you start putting infrared film in it and make yeah. sure that it's compatible and that it's not going to cause any issues. Sure. And I guess if you wanted to be really safe, you would just use a fully manual camera with no electronics. So something like a, a Canon AE-1 or yeah. a Nikon FM3 or something like that I've that had got, no auto winding. Well, I was actually, I've got a Nikon FM3A up there and I was, I was kind of worried because that can read DX codes, I believe. So I was like, mm, I don't know if I should use that. I've also got a Canon AE-1 program, which has been, um, had a CLA recently. Uh, yep. which has turned out beautiful. So I, might, I think I'm just going to use the Canon. And I think the filters I've bought so far are, are the same uh, filter thread for the Canon. So I think I'll just use that and see how I go. Um, yep. Now, there's a film out there um, created by Lamography, which mm-hmm. is probably the closest thing to Aerochrome we're ever going to get in the, in, in the next 10 years, probably. Um, have you ever tried out Lamography's purple film? I know it's nowhere near the same, but it, it's, it's, it's mm. a color shift film as well. Have you ever given that a go? I haven't, but what I, I'm interested to try it and I'm particularly interested um, to try it with different coloured filters because I think that from what I've read online, people have pretty interesting results when they, say, treat it as if it were aerochrome yeah. and shoot it with a yellow or an orange filter and you can get quite different effects. Yeah. Um, I, I, I quite like the colour palette that Lomochrome Purple has and I actually just bought or pre-ordered a bunch of rolls of Lomochrome's turquoise, turquoise film, yeah, yeah. Um, which I never got a chance to shoot when it was around and they've just re-released it um, yep. and I just pre-ordered some film. And I find that that has very interesting colours itself. I mean, they're slightly different technology, the way that they create <laughs> yep. the colour shifts. That I think they work based on kind of eliminating one of the colour layers or colour dyes versus Aerochrome had different sensitivity of the colour dyes. Yep. So, I mean... Lomochrome purple is not sensitive to infrared light, but produces an effect that I guess is similar. So yeah, I'm interested in exploring them. Um, probably will shoot a bit of it over the summer. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I haven't actually ordered my turquoise yet. Uh, I because you know when we we order from Lomography here in Australia, it comes from Hong Kong, and you've got to order yep. over three hundred US dollars to get free shipping. And I just haven't I haven't done it yet. But it, you just reminded me that I better get in, otherwise I'll be at the the end of the the order list, and I won't get mine for forever. Um, I think that's it for all my questions. Rob, would you like to tell us about where people in Sydney or New South Wales, or if they're visiting Sydney in late mm-hmm. November, where can they come and see your extraordinary work? So, yeah, my, my exhibition starts actually next Wednesday. It's one week from day of recording. Exactly. So, yeah, 24th Wednesday. November? 24th, yeah, 24th of November. It's at Barometer Gallery in Paddington. I think the address is 13 Gurner Street, but just Google Barometer Gallery. Yep. Um, and it's, it runs for only a couple of days. It's from Wednesday evening is the, the opening night. So that, that'll be 6 to 8.30 p.m. Yep. on Wednesday the 24th, and it closes on Sunday, 28th of November. So, Unfortunately, just for a couple of days based on mostly the cost of hiring the gallery, but that's also when the, the festival closes as well. Um, but, yeah. Excellent. So uh, it's got, got on your website here. Uh, so um, it's Wednesday, the opening night. Can anyone attend the opening night or do you have to be invited? Or No, no, anyone can attend. I'm, 
I'm hoping that the opening night will be a bit bustling. I mean, it's a yep. pretty small gallery, but I'm picturing that I'll have a few of my friends and hopefully some of the yeah, local Sydney film community yep. coming along as well as whoever's interested in head-on photo festival itself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the opening night might be a little busy, but, yeah, definitely come on down and, and have a drink. I'll be providing some kind of a light light refreshments, I'll say. Excellent. Um, <laughs> but it's a pretty small gallery, so probably don't expect to be spending lots of time in, in there, but yeah, the, it's open for a, for a couple more nights and you're welcome yep. to come over the weekend and spend a bit more time in the gallery. Excellent. And where can people see your work on the internet, on Instagram or other places? Give us all the details, Rob. Yeah. So yeah, my website's just, yeah, my name, www.robwalwyn.com and that's W-A-L-W-Y-N.com. And it's the same kind of Instagram handle of Rob Walwyn. Um, on Instagram. So yeah, th- those are the main social media I use. I've got a Flickr account as well, which you can probably find by Googling my name, um, but mostly yeah, Instagram and my website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to chat to me today. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will be fascinated to hear your take on how you shot Aerochrome. I'm sure they'll be fascinated to go to your website or your Instagram and see these extraordinary images. And hopefully there's a lot of people here in Australia, in Sydney or New South Wales, who can get down to the gallery. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Matt. So if you're going to be in Sydney between the 24th and the 28th of November, get along to Rob's exhibition, Carrikins. It is taking place at the Barometer Gallery at 13 Gurner Street, Paddington. Opening night is Wednesday the 24th of November. It starts at 6pm and goes through till 8.30pm that night. And then it's on until Sunday the 28th of November. Go along to Rob's website for all the details, including the times for each day. That's Rob warwin.com r-o-b-w-a-l-w-y-n.com it is part of the head-on photo festival which looks absolutely fascinating i wish i could get down to sydney myself unfortunately we still have some some travel restrictions up here in queensland so if i went down i wouldn't be able to get back Uh, but you can find out all the information about the head-on photo festival at headon.com.au Thank you so much to the latest coffee donation from Zishan Khan. Zishan sent me $5 through the Ko-Fi or coffee website. Zishan actually had uh, put their website through with a donation and I had a look at the website, which is actually quite fascinating. Get along and have a look. It's zishankhan.com. I'll spell that for you. It's Z-E-E-S-H-A-N-K-H-A-N.com. And uh, Zishan has got some absolutely wonderful black and white photography on their website and uh, there's a beautiful project here called Beacons of Hope Volume 1 which is down the left hand side of the menu and this is fascinating this is a, a project based around the lighthouses of New England in the United States and what I find just incredible I mean there's some beautiful beautiful photography but every single image of these lighthouses they're all photographed in a completely unique and different way uh, which I think is absolutely fantastic um, so definitely get along to that website zshankhan.com and check out Zishan's photography and thank you so much for your coffee donation and if you'd like to help out here are the deets if you would like to support this podcast why not buy our data coffee visit coffee.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash matt loves cameras and buy him a coffee for just three dollars
I've actually had some emails midweek, which I need to reply to. One was from Ken Tuomi, friend of the show, Ken Tuomi. Another one was Francois Levadure up there in Canada. Hello, Francois, or bonjour, Francois. And um, one of the things that was said in the emails was actually from Ken. He said, can you get your children and your wife more on the podcast? So um, I would definitely try and think up some new little jingles the kids can do. Uh, they're not, well, they're sort of not really kids anymore. They're sort of growing, growing up now. My, my son is 11 and my daughter's 13. So I will definitely think of some, from new ways, new jingles that we can do. Probably everyone's probably getting sick of the old ones. And I've also approached my wife and I sort of butted her up and said, would you like to come on Matt Loves Cameras? And, you know, we can talk through, we can talk through some English jokes maybe. And we can, we can also do a, a comparison of, you know, Wolverhampton English and a standard English, which would be fascinating. Uh, so there you go. Look forward, <laughs> look forward to that. Maybe sometime before Christmas, get my wife on the podcast. That'll be a scream. That reminds me, I need to, need to order some Christmas gifts this weekend because there's not much time left really and the post this year is going to be a complete nightmare I think. Now speaking about the posts, I keep getting notifications almost every day that people are getting the purple grain zines. Uh, hopefully they're arriving in one piece. I know that one particular person, I won't say who it was, but someone's did not arrive in one piece which I'm very very upset over but I believe that everyone else's, it seems everyone else is getting theirs in one piece. Uh, it is a bit of a a bit of a worrisome thing because you're kind of putting them in these paper envelopes hoping they, they get to their destination okay uh, and I think the vast majority of people have got theirs safe and sound which is wonderful if you haven't got yours yet don't worry it won't be far away now I've also had curiously I, I sold a every few weeks I sell a copy of my first film photography zine every summer which of course I've talked about extensively on this podcast I had a sale probably about four or five weeks ago from Michael here in Australia and then I woke up one morning and I had two sales of every summer in the same day, one from Melanie and one from Molly. Uh, and I was wondering, what's going on? Is someone out there someone out there, sort of spruiking my every summer zine? I don't know why I've had two in 12 hours. It's unusual to have two in that short space of time. Uh, so I'm sending them to uh, those zines to Molly and Melanie tomorrow on Monday. Uh, so look out for the post. Hopefully you'll get them before Christmas. And um, thank you so much for buying the zine. And I thought, you know, if you are a new listener to Matt Loves Cameras, because the, the podcast numbers have been going up over the last six months quite steadily. And perhaps you're new here to Matt Loves Cameras and you may not have heard about my every summer zine before. Uh, I thought I could tell you about it, but the, probably the best person to tell you about it is Vanya from All Through a Lens podcast. Vanya did a wonderful review. And so I could I could tell you how good the zine is, but really, are you, you know, are you going to believe me? <laughs> I'm not sure you will. So here is the wonderful Vanya from All Through a Lens. I actually played this on the podcast about 14, 15 months ago and I got permission from Author Lens and I'll play it again just in case you're you're looking for a a cool zine have a listen to this as we're wrapping this episode up we've got a couple things to take care of first and, and the most important thing is uh, a zine review Vanya you recently got a zine that you've mentioned a couple of times uh, you really like this thing tell me about it yes I absolutely love it it's so great so Matt Murray sent me uh, every summer and it is a eight by eight perfect bound Ooh. zine photo book-esque thing there's a bunch of stories in it um, I absolutely love the zine um, it's more than just a zine it's something really lovely and just funny too um, there's personal stories in it Matt seems to have definitely poured his heart and soul into this one his images uh, he captured are bright and bold and definitely I mean 
the title says it summer and it is very very summer uh there are a mix of landscapes capturing some lovely lovely grain as well as some stills of summertime fun with family and of course there is the ice cream truck and (laughs) i'm absolutely in love with this ice cream truck and the story that's attached to the ice cream truck is really great too but you will have to get a copy because i'm not going to spill it where can they get a copy of this well so matt mary has like several different instagrams okay so i will tell you all of them How handy. There is Matt Loves Cameras, okay. Matt Loves Instant, Matt Loves Film, and Matt Loves. So he loves lots of things. Um, he also has a website. It's mattlovescameras.com. Okay. I highly recommend getting this. It was just so, um, it was such a good mail day. And he sent me postcards and I've basically used them all already. I'm so sad. <laughs> but, oh my God, just such a wonderful like bright sunny book that's awesome yes that's awesome and and very uh apropos for the episode that we're doing today on travel on summer travel dude this ice cream truck though you guys seriously i mean i don't know if you guys follow him i'm sure he's posted it at some point uh it is just wonderful um his perspectives of some of the architecture yeah it's just a really good photo book he kind of like pushed the bar up a little bit it's nice yeah seeing that. it's very well made and I, I really love the writing in here it's given me some time to kind of think about like as far as my next one goes i kind of want kind of want to add a little, a little bit more writing oh cool a little bit, maybe some more personal stories. I think that really um, gave a more personal touch to this. Yeah. They're not just pictures. No, I'm very excited to see that. So thank you, Matt, for sending me this scene. I absolutely adore it. It's going to be in my living room probably for quite some time for Ooh. people to take a look at. Nice. So there you go. Uh, thank you again to Vanya from All Through a Lens for that wonderful review. I think I'm going to get uh, Vanya to do all of my PR from now on. If you'd like to order a copy of Every Summer, I've still got 12 or 14 copies left of the fourth print run. Yeah, it's now in its fourth print run. So head along to mattlovescameras.com and search for Every Summer. Or you can just go to Google and put in Every Summer Zine Matt Murray. And there's actually two links there. One is to the episode where I, I talked about the zine and the one beneath that says buy every summer film photography zine and it is it's 14 pounds 95 uh, for uk orders for us international orders it's 18 dollars 95 us and for australian orders it's 22 dollars 95 cents australian so there you go get onto that uh, buy a copy of the zine and you will be stunned and amazed hopefully <laughs> i've actually got another zine in the works i was actually talking to jeff and gabe the other day from my dream of cameras i promised to send them in may i promised to send them my second film photography zine which is uh, called rolled gold but yet from may till november i still haven't finished it off i kind of had zine writers block and i'm hoping to finish off rolled gold very soon there's not too much um sort of what's the word motivation to finish it off before christmas because with the post and everything from now until christmas it's going to be crazy so i think what i'm going to do is i'm going to try and send it off to the printers perhaps in early january so it gives me a good six weeks just to get everything right and so i'll be uh, i'll be doing that and I'll, I'll definitely be sending vanya a copy if she's 
up to review the next one, but it's kind of like um, kind of like a second second album, isn't it? You know how how bands come out with their second album and it's not quite as good as their first. I mean, unless they're Nirvana, uh, it's, it's it's that kind of problem, isn't it? You know, is the second one going to live up to the first one? Uh, but we shall see. So the Fantastic 2021 competition is rolling on. We only have 11 entries so far. I know that a few people are still going to send their entries in. So make sure you get your entries in by the 30th of November. Thank you so much to Lucy Lumen and also to the old camera guy, Dave Mahali. They did wonderful YouTube videos where they went out and shot their cheap plastic focus-free pano cameras. Now, speaking about zines and all that and this competition, because we only have 11 people so far, I am expecting that to go up a little little bit but because we've only got 11 entries we might have a bit of a switch up with this competition we might actually be extending this into next year I think I mentioned that in the last episode uh, but don't worry if you've, you're going to send yours in don't worry they're not going to be lost or they're going to be counted we'll definitely they're definitely part of the competition uh, but what we'll do is I will make a decision at uh, the, the end of November, early December, on what we're going to do with the competition. We may well extend it out to Easter 2022. So uh, just to get some more people involved, because I always seem to pick really bad times of years for my Northern Hemisphere friends to take part in these contests. It's all dark and cold up there at the moment. But don't worry, if you have sent entries in already or you're planning to, you will not be disadvantaged. In fact, you may have a major advantage in this competition, but I will reveal reveal all of those details uh, very soon. That's it for this episode of Matt Loves Cameras. If you're in Sydney, make sure you get along to that head-on photo festival. And in particular, make sure you check out Rob's Carrican's exhibition at the Barometer Gallery in Paddington. Now, the only other bit of news I've got to tell you before I finish this off is that I took the plunge, listeners, and I bought some Lomography Turquoise film. After chatting to Rob and hearing how Rob had bought his, I thought, geez, I better get in there. I don't want to, I don't want to be too far down the queue. So it was a bit of an investment. I had to buy 27 rolls of turquoise to get free shipping to Australia, which is a bit of a bummer, but hey, that's just one of those things. So I'll have about, I'll probably have about half of that for people to buy in Australia at cost price, but I'll let you know when it arrives and I'll, I'll flog some off to pay the credit card bill. Looks like a storm's rolling in, so I better hurry up and finish off this episode and uh, get in the pool with my son. I promised I'd have a swim with him this afternoon, so I better go find my cozy, my swimmers, my board shorts, my budgie smugglers. Sorry for that mental image if you're picturing Matt Love's cameras in budgie smugglers. That's a mental image that most people would not want. No one wants to see that. In fact, even Mrs. Murray doesn't want to see me in budgie smugglers. But don't worry. Budgie smugglers, by the way, are those very tight swimming trunks. <laughs> I don't actually wear budgie smugglers, by the way, listeners. I wear, uh, you'd be very pleased to know, I wear board shorts. Good old board shorts. In fact, the, the children just bought me a pair of board shorts for my birthday. They've got cockatoos on. Those beautiful parrots with a yellow frill on their head. So you can imagine me in my, my cockatoo board shorts in the backyard pool. Oh, gosh, I better go. Take care. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Matt loves cameras. <laughs> I was going to say you ruined that, but it actually sounded pretty good. Why, thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
Yep. Yeah, <laughs> Come on. 